the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day and spent just a moment or two reflecting on the reason for that occasion. Well, today on the program, we're going to reprise a conversation I had with Jack Phillips. He's the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. Now, those two things may seem incongruous, but unfortunately, those kinds of things are happening more frequently these days and are far from being thoroughly resolved. Jack Phillips coming up in the next hour. Taking a look at some of the news uh, headlines, new intel is throwing more credibility behind the Wuhan lab theory as pressure on the World Health Organization is ramping up. Well, British intelligence services are now reportedly reassessing their position on the theory of COVID-19 that it leaked from a lab in China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. A Sunday report from the Sunday Times of London quotes British spies who initially dismissed the lab leak theory, but now say it's feasible. There might be uh, pockets of evidence that take us one way and evidence that takes us another way, the paper quoted as sources saying. Well, the Chinese uh, will lie either way. I don't think we will ever know, end quote. Well, the quote comes as both the United States and Britain are stepping up calls for the World Health Organization to take a deeper look into the possible origins of COVID-19, including a new visit to China, where the first human infections were detected. World Health Organization and Chinese experts, they issued a first report back in March, not this past March, but the one before, that laid out four hypotheses about how the pandemic might have emerged. Well, the joint team said that most likely scenario was that the coronavirus jumped into people from bats via an intermediary animal and the prospect that it erupted from a laboratory was deemed extremely unlikely. Well, the Biden administration wants to uh, step up calls uh, for China to be more open about the outbreak, aiming to head off complaints from the opposition, Republican senators, that the president has not been tough enough, as well as to use the opportunity to press China on alleged obstruction. A Washington Post columnist roasts the media on the COVID-19 lab theory about face, pointing out that uh, here is uh, zero, there is zero self-awareness. Meanwhile, reporters admit that dismissing the Wuhan lab leak theory was in part because Republicans proposed it. So much for unbiased and fair reporting. Senator Tom Cotton reacts to, uh, reacted rather to the media's about face on Wuhan uh, and the lab leak theory, admitting to a sense of relief. Meanwhile, ABC's chief White House reporter says a lot of reporters have egg on their face over the Wuhan lab leak theory. Well, Americans unmasked gathered and remembered over the Labor Day weekend as a sense of normalcy is returning. The weekend services uh, looked a bit different this year than they did in 2020 as Americans, more than half of which have received the COVID-19 vaccine, gathered to remember fallen heroes. President Biden attended a memorial service in Delaware on Sunday as he remembered his late son, Bo Biden, who served in Iraq and died of brain cancer in May of 2015. We're honored, but it's also a tough day. 
It brings back everything, Biden said in a Sunday speech. So I can't thank you enough for your continued service to our country and your sons, your daughters. They live on in your hearts and in their children's uh, as well. He then addressed the nation on Monday with a Memorial Day address at Arlington Cemetery. We're the children of sacrifice made by a long line of American service members, each a link in that chain of honor, Biden said during his speech. We are free because they were brave. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris just simply said, have a great three-day weekend. In other developments on Memorial Day, President Biden asked Americans to remember the sacrifice, the valor and humanity of fallen service members. And uh, on Memorial Day, six Americans gave their lives fighting for freedom on that very day abroad. And Oklahoma teens are being praised for their friendship with a student with Down syndrome. Their graduation photo went viral. And a Texas high school's graduation ceremony was saved by phone flashlights after a power outage. The Supreme Court is preparing for a final push to release hot-button rulings amid retirement talk, which, of course, would change the uh, makeup or at least could change the makeup of the court. And a California sheriff's deputy is in serious condition after being shot during an attempted traffic stop. They never know when they approach a car what's going to happen next. The Major League Baseball Players Union is facing an all-star lawsuit for pulling a game out of Atlanta. And progressive Dems are urging President Biden to abandon infrastructure negotiations with Republicans. Well, Intel reiterates that the chip supply shortage could last several years. And Nestle is under fire over unhealthy products. They're working on a new strategy. Don't we kind of need some of their unhealthy products? Well, Miami is uh, planning to host the largest cryptocurrency conference in history. Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg says masks on planes are a matter of respect. Science is trumped by feelings. He didn't say that. I'm adding that. Meanwhile, on Sunday, the United States reported just 115 deaths and a little over 5,000 new cases. That's nationwide. Neither category has uh, been that low since the pandemic began. Courts are stopping the Biden administration from using race to determine federal benefits. At issue is the uh, SBA, the um, Business Association requirement, that only applications for restaurant relief from women and racial minorities will be processed in the first 21 days, sending everyone else to the back of the line. As the courts recognize, the danger is that the uh, uh, SBA will run out of uh, funds before those other applications can be considered. So on the merits, they didn't necessarily rule, but on the fact that uh, the benefits were limited, So it's sort of a mixed bag. The Equality Act would take harmful uh, California policy and apply them nationwide. Uh, Columnist Shire looks at the uh, ways men in prison can now declare they are female and get transferred to an all-female prison. From one female inmate, you're locked in this room 24-7 with a man and there's nothing you can do about it. If you tell the police you don't want to live with a man or you're afraid or whatever, you'll get a disciplinary infraction. So you're basically punished for being scared. This is in the prison system. Well, a study claims that COVID immunity may last for years. Many have wondered why the authorities act as if this isn't the case from the story Uh, The first study published on Monday in the journal Nature found most people who were infected with the virus about a year earlier had 
immunological memory of the disease in their their bone marrow, suggesting they're still able to produce antibodies. And another report, which was published on the preprint server BioRxIC, found that these cells, called memory B, were robust for at least 12 months after infection. A female weightlifter is speaking out against a man competing as a woman in the Olympics. From the story, a Belgian weightlifter, Anna Van Bellingen, is the first rival to speak out against Hubbard's potential participation in the Games. Van der Bellingen uh, says she supports the transgender community but raised questions whether Hubbard, who completes uh, in the same uh, over 87-kilogram division as uh, she does, should compete. Anyone that has trained weightlifting as the high level knows this is to be true in their bones. This particular situation is unfair to the sport and to the athletes. Vander Bellingham told Olympics News website Inside the Games. And Amazon is, is offering Blue Lives Murder apparel from that story in the New York Post as of Sunday. Apparel including an $8.99 black polyester Blue Lives Murder face mask and T-shirts and hoodies uh, featuring um, uh, with the cop-hating slogan as well as the message, Blue Lives Aren't Real, could readily be found for sale on Amazon. Uh, Amazon, rather, again, New York Post reporting. As of this posting, Amazon still offered the anti-police apparel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the uh, top news stories. We're also going to share my conversation with Jack Phillips in the second hour of today's program. His book is simply titled The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I should mention, produced today by James Blend, engineered by Clark Hilton, and Dan Rice has made uh, use of his office for the sake of the cause, and I appreciate that as well. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the top news stories of the last several days. Well, UNICEF now says pornography isn't so bad for children. Isn't so bad for children. According to the story, UNICEF also claims keeping children from accessing pornography is a violation of their human rights. You can read more on that story at Red State Online. From page 36 of their report, yes, they dedicated 36-plus pages, there are several different kinds of risks and harms that have been linked to children's exposure to pornography, but there is no consensus on the degree to which pornography is harmful to children. This is UNICEF. It appears UNICEF pulled the original report and replaced it with a slightly modified version, the New Daily Compass can tell you more on that. Well, a Black Lives Matter founder at the St. Paul chapter has turned on the organization. A big believer in school choice, Rashad Turner, he explained after a year on the inside, I learned they had little concern for rebuilding black families and they care even less about improving the quality of education for students in Minneapolis. More on that story later in the program. Vice President Kamala Harris tried gender-inclusive green humor at the Naval Academy pretty much bombed from the story addressing the next generation of America's warriors. The vice president cracked a quip about how they just love all that green investment she and Joe Biden are planning. Just ask any Marine today who she'd rather uh, carry a 20 pounds of batteries or a rolled up solar panel. And I am positive she will tell you a solar panel 
and so would he. Well, Ms. Harris' attempt at gender-inclusive, environment-friendly comedy elicited an appreciative and raucous appeal of laughter, but only from her. The rest of the audience looked like, well, they wanted to crawl under the nearest solar panel. Well, a court struck down the provision in the COVID relief bill that discriminated against white restaurant owners. And in disinformation, CNN, AP and the Daily Beast described the illegal immigrant who murdered Molly Tibbetts as a farm worker. By the way, that is not an apt description of that individual. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has launched a plan to combat worker shortages, calling it an urgent crisis. And Major League Baseball Players Union, they're facing a lawsuit. They pulled the All-Star game, as you might recall, out of Atlanta. Well, the U.S. Coast Guard has suspended the search for 10 Cuban migrants from a capsized boat near Florida. And President Biden's border crisis has led to a spike in fentanyl trafficking. The world's largest meat processor, JBS Foods, has been hit by a cyber attack. And China once again suggested the coronavirus may have originated in the United States. Well, Florida's governor signed a bill banning males from girls and women's sports. And Idaho's governor has issued an executive order repealing the lieutenant governor's executive order prohibiting a mask mandate. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has fired back at the coalition effort to oust him, and Iran has a uranium stockpile 16 times over the nuclear deal limit and won't let anyone inspect it. Thanks for hooking us back up with Iran, President Biden. And after the working age population shrunk, China eased its birth limits and will now allow couples to have three children. Never thought I'd see that in my lifetime after the one-child policy. And in the annals of the social justice caliphate, a Virginia teacher has been placed on leave after refusing to affirm trans identity for kids. And Blue's Clues is trans propagandizing preschoolers. We won't have time to get into that today, but I'll fill you in on that uh, later this week. You can read more about it at The Federalist online. Well, on this day in history, 1980, cable news network CNN makes its debut. 2009, General Motors files for Chapter 11, becoming the largest U.S. industrial company to enter bankruptcy protection. Citigroup Inc. and General Motors Corporation are removed from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 2017, President Trump announces that the U.S. will leave the Paris Climate Agreement. But, of course, we're now back in it. Well, the CDC says that guidance applies to situations where everyone is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Well, that's loosening the mask requirements for summer camps. The Centers for Disease Control updated their summer camp guidelines on Friday to include situations in which everyone is fully vaccinated prior to the start of camp. Well, under the newly revised guidance, the CDC now says that when everyone at camp is vaccinated, it is safe to return to full capacity without masking and without physical distancing, except where required by federal, state, local, tribal or territorial laws, rules and regulations. Well, the agency notes that in general, people do not need to wear masks while outdoors, but in areas of substantial to high transmission, those who are not fully vaccinated are encouraged to wear one or when involved in sustained close contact with others who are not inoculated. Well, the guidance also states that while vaccinated people do not need to wear masks, camp programs should continue to be supportive of campers or staff 
who choose to wear one. Currently, COVID-19 vaccines are only available to those 12 years of age and older. Camps that include children not yet eligible are advised to continue practicing mitigation strategies, such as using masks, physical distancing, hand washing, avoiding crowds or poorly ventilated indoor activities, uh, routine cleansing, uh, screening testing, and testing those with symptoms. I still felt incomplete. Detransitioned men and women described how frighteningly easy it was to get trans surgeries and hormones. That's in that 60 Minutes program on CBS. Well, multiple men and women who have detransitioned, that means they transitioned to the opposite sex as much as is uh, possible, and then transitioned back to their biological sex, describe how easy it was for them to get transgender surgeries and hormones in a new CBS segment and how the surgeries or treatments negatively impacted them. Now, the fact that this was admitted publicly, I mean, it's admitted all the time among those who will listen and those who have gone through the transition and detransition, but for CBS to feature a segment was really quite remarkable. As lawmakers across the country introduce and pass bills focused on gender transitions, Leslie Stahl interviewed multiple medical experts and former uh, or current transgender people who expressed fear that transgender surgeries and hormone treatments, often irreversible, are too easily attainable. The CBS host said the program interviewed more than 30 detransitioners who say they also had experienced regret, including these four who hadn't met before now. Uh, I can believe that, or rather I can't believe that I transitioned and detransitioned, including hormones and surgery, in the course of like less than one year, one young woman said, it's completely crazy. For years now, those opposed to gender ideology masquerading as medicine have predicted that this harmful movement would lead to countless people regretting the transitions that they had been pushed into. American Principles Project President Terry Schilling told the Daily Caller News Foundation on Monday morning. Unfortunately, after long being ignored, this concern has become a reality, so much so that even the legacy media feels that they can no longer disregard the voices of detransitioners. Well, I wouldn't be quite so optimistic. CBS featured one segment on their 60 Minutes program, and I'm not hearing uh, much of the as they re uh, refer to legacy media clamoring for additional interviews. This growing issue is precisely the reason why states like Arkansas and Tennessee are taking steps to ensure children are not forced down this path at a young age, he added. And as the plight of detransitioners becomes more visible, we hope many other states will follow. Great uh, Linsky Smith uh, told Stahl, this is the host of the CBS program 60 Minutes, uh, that she experienced gender dysphoria and was seriously depressed in her early 20s and began researching trans transgender transitions and communities. Linsky Smith said that she saw many transgender people being so happy and excited about doing this wonderful transformative process to become their true selves. I was like, have I considered that, uh, that this um, could be my situation too, she said. I just had this sense that if I could inhabit life as like a trans man, as a man, then I wouldn't uh, feel so self-conscious. I was thinking that it would uh, make me feel very free. Walensky Smith said she found a gender therapist online who had few sessions with her. The therapist affirmed Linsky Smith's desire to transition, but Linsky Smith said the therapist uh, didn't really go into what my gender dysphoria might have been stemming from. Beginning the process was easy, according to the segment. Linsky Smith signed an informed consent form and then got a prescription for testosterone. We'll tell you more about that in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a story regarding a CBS 60 Minutes program in which they featured those who uh, had uh, men and women who had detransitioned. And one of the uh, interviews uh, with Leslie Stahl was with Linsky Smith, uh, who described her situation that was uh, ultimately detransitioned back to her original and biological sex. She said she found her gender therapist online who had a few sessions with her. The therapist affirmed that she had a desire to transition, but Linsky Smith said uh, that the therapist didn't really go into what her gender dysphoria might have been stemming from. Well, beginning the process was easy, according to the segment. Linsky Smith signed an informed consent form and then got a prescription for testosterone. They asked me, so why do you, uh, you want to go on tres- uh, testosterone? Linsky Smith recalled. And I said, well, being a woman just isn't working for me anymore. And they said, okay, that was it. Well, just four months after she started testosterone, she said she was approved for a mastectomy, what's called top surgery, that she... Um, uh, was told was um, going to be really relatively simple, but was for her traumatic. Linsky Smith described having a really disturbing sense that uh, like a part of my body was missing, almost a ghost limb uh, feeling about being uh, like there's something that should be there. And the feeling really surprised her, but it was really hard to deny. Well, Linsky Smith stopped using testosterone, went back to the clinic and complained to the doctor that the process she had gone through didn't follow World Professional Association for Transgender Health guidelines. I can't believe that I transitioned and detransitioned, including hormones and surgery, in the course of like less than a year, she said. It's completely crazy. Well, there were others, and doctors also weighed in. Uh, One doctor who had helped hundreds of young people transition, Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, told CBS, it's uh, generally concerned, sir, where the field has been going. I feel like what is happening is unethical and irresponsible in some places. Uh, She added, everyone is very scared to speak up because we're afraid of not being seen as being affirming or being supportive of those young people or doing something to hurt the trans community, the doctor said. But even some of the providers are trans themselves and share these concerns. Now, this is remarkable to me. And this, I think, characterizes the culture in general. There's a tremendous amount of fear to speak the truth, even speaking the truth in love, even speaking the truth when backed up by science and legitimate concerns about the impact that moving forward with uh, this this technology, this medical technology um, can and does do. And that fear prevents people from standing up and speaking against elements of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the um, critical race theory. Uh, Here you have medical professionals, some of whom are themselves uh, trans um, and are fearful of speaking out against what they see as a real problem for those pursuing this procedure. Well, Dr. Erica Anderson of the University of California, San Francisco, who's also transgender, suggested that stories about those uh, who decommission uh, demonstrate the need for more health care for the transgender community rather than a ban on transgender surgeries and procedures. Um, this doctor says, I think we cannot turn a blind eye to the needs of those trans people who have gotten less than adequate care or even poor care or for those who shouldn't have transitioned at all. I would add, I think the kinds of things we advocate for don't hurt trans people. Linsky Smith said, like we want uh, there to be more help 
from therapists with dysphoria. Uh, we want there to be longer-term tracking of health outcomes. Everyone benefits from that. Well, Abigail Schreier, who's an author, was one of the first uh, to sound the alarm on the ease with which some young people had transitioned. Schreier, the author of Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, which examined spikes in transgenderism among teenaged girls who formerly displayed feminine traits and tendencies, praised those who spoke out in the CBS interview. It takes enormous courage to speak out as a detransitioner, um, as Hormone Hangover did in the uh, this 60-minute episode clip, Schreier said, referring to Linsky Smith. She will no doubt face torrents of um, hate, but she just may save thousands of girls. By the way, I would recommend the book. We've been trying to get an interview on that for quite some time, and I'm still hoping that we might be able to have <clears throat> Ms. Schreier on the program. <clears throat> Please excuse me. Well, in other, other news, the Wall Street Journal editorial board says the virus lab theories has new credibility. President Biden on Wednesday ordered U.S. intelligence to dig deeper into the origins of COVID-19. That's a reversal after he repeatedly ordered a State Department investigation unit shut down. So it's quite possible we'll be closer to the truth at one point without the uh, president resisting uh, said examination. So we're hopeful. Senator Rand Paul led a press conference on Friday with a handful of fellow Republicans to explain why the National Science Foundation doesn't uh, deserve a 68 percent increase in funding for research on such things as frog mating calls and the sexual promiscuity of Japanese quail high on cocaine. Well, this is the agency that funds studying the male mating call of the Panamanian frogs to see if the uh, Country frogs have a different mating call than the city frogs. This is the agency that funds whether or not we should study whether humans should eat ants to slow down the warming of the planet, whether or not Japanese quail are more sexually promiscuous on cocaine. Well, the press conference was held in response to a proposed increase in the funding for the National Science Foundation included in the Endless Frontier Act. Senator Chuck Schumer has called for the bill, uh, or rather called the bill, a once-in-a-generation investment in American science and American technology. Uh, in response to the bill, Senator uh, John Kennedy told Tucker Carlson tonight, my mother did not raise a fool, and if she did, it was one of my brothers. This was not a fight, uh, to, uh, a fight communism bill. If you look at this bill and study it, you will see this is an all four feet and your snout in the trough spending bill with virtually no money going to military defense. Well, Paul, um, this is uh, Rand Paul. He claimed that no American would vote to fund an organization that conducts this type of research. The American people would be alarmed and would rebel if they knew. He was trying to make sure that we are informed. Paul said at the press gathering, it's disappointing that many of my Republican colleagues would vote for this. I'm standing with those who do care about the deficit. We will continue to fight, and I think we are making inroads. Well, Friday morning, Rand Paul delivered a 32-minute speech on the Senate floor, employing the use of numerous props. He used colorful poster boards to demonstrate the wasteful spending of the National Science Foundation. He also discussed funds being used for the development of a climate change video game and sending kids in Pakistan to space camp and Dollywood, among other things. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, the total U.S. national debt as of April of this year, $28,174,714,000. Of course, the decimal point might be a bit off. Well, the founder of Black Lives Matter, 
in St. Paul, Minnesota, recently released a video in which he called out the group's ugly truth by which he meant their position on family and education. In 2015, I was the founder of Black Lives Matter in St. Paul, Rashid Turner, who now leads the pro-school choice group, Minnesota Parent Union. I believe the organization stood for exactly what the name implies. Black lives do matter. However, after a year on the inside, I learned they had little concern for rebuilding black families. Turner's video published to YouTube last week highlighted how the group's website started that uh, it uh, wanted to disrupt the nuclear family. And they cared even less, Turner added, about improving the quality of education for students in Minneapolis. That was made clear when they publicly denounced charter schools alongside the teachers union. I was an insider in Black Lives Matter and I learned the ugly truth. The moratorium on charter schools does not support rebuilding the black family, but it does create a barrier to better education for black children. BLM did not respond to questions regarding this about face. Turner's comments touched on uh, an ongoing criticism of BLM, namely that its goals and political positions are much more left-wing and Marxist than the name might suggest. The group has acquired heightened popularity in the wake of prominent police encounters that sparked ongoing protests in recent years. Politicians and other leading figures have adopted the slogan as well, perhaps little understanding what lay behind it. Recent events, however, have intensified scrutiny of its leader and her ideas. Co-founder Patrice Cullors uh, came under fire after it was revealed she bought four homes for more than $3 million. The self-described Marxist was also seen in a resurfaced video favorably comparing a book to the Little Red Book propagated under Chinese dictator Mao Zedong. Well, the BLM curriculum also endangered, or rather engendered controversy over ideas the organization was promoting in schools. Colors is uh, stepping down from her role as executive director of the activist group Central Foundation with questions about her finances. She told the Associated Press on Thursday that she was leaving the position to focus on other projects, including the release of her second book and a television deal with Warner Brothers. She held the top post at Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation for more than five years. The activist said she had created the necessary bones and foundation the organization and felt the time is right to leave. She asserted that her exit was planned for more than a year and was unrelated to scrutiny regarding her personal finances. Just convenient, I suppose. Those were right-wing attacks that tried to discredit my character, and I don't operate off of what the right thinks of me, Colors said. However, her most recent critic stood with her on the left and was a member of the organization she founded. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, at the second hour of today's program, we're going to feature a conversation I had with Jack Phillips. He's the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. That's coming up at the top of the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the mothers of several people whose names have been invoked by Black Lives Matter activists panned the group's co-founder, Patrice Cullors, for benefiting off the blood of their family members. Now, keep in mind, these are not right-wingers. She suggested that any criticism she has faced uh, prior to announcing her resignation is from the right, and she doesn't really um, take much criticism or much stock in what the right has to say. But these are the families of those who um, this organization has championed uh, as uh, being the reason behind the movement. Well, Colors last week announced that she would, of course, be departing the organization. 
uh, coming after reports disclosed her finances and real estate holdings and other criticisms as well. They are benefiting off the blood of our loved ones, and they won't even talk to us. That's a quote from Samaria Rice, the mother of a 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, who was shot by police in Cleveland. She was speaking to the New York Post. Rice added that she contacted Black Lives Matter to help in reopening a federal investigation into her son's death in 2014, exchanging several emails with colors years ago before nothing came of it. I don't believe she is uh, going anywhere, Rice said of the BLM co-founder. It's all a facade, she continued. She's only saying uh, that to get the heat off of her right now. Lisa Simpson, whose son was also killed in a Los Angeles Police Department officer uh, involved incident in 2016, also criticized the organization's co-founder. Now, she doesn't have to show her accountability. Simpson, who's 52, sold a newspaper in reference to Colors, moved to leave the organization. She can just take the money and run. In an interview with the Associated Press, Colors said that recent criticism and reports about her finances were not the reason why she was leaving Black Lives Matter, saying she um, wants to focus on other endeavors. What's more, Colors, who previously uh, called herself a trained Marxist and has praised Chinese Communist Party founder Mao Zedong, uh, alleged that the articles about the multiple homes she owns uh, that are reportedly worth uh, millions of dollars are a part of a right-wing smear campaign. The Epic Times has contacted Black Lives Matter for comment. They've chosen not to. They have revealed to AP, however, that the group took a $90 million, took in $90 million after the George Floyd death, which sparked nationwide Black Lives Matter demonstrations, riots, and related violence last year. But according to Simpson, Black Lives Matter raised $5,000 for her son's funeral, and she never received any of the money. In March, both Rice and Simpson panned BLM leadership. We never hired them to be our representatives in the fight for justice for our dead loved ones murdered by police. Their statement said, the Post reported, the activists have events in our cities and have not given us anything substantial for using our loved ones' images and names in their flyers. We don't want or need y'all parading in the streets, accumulating donations, platform, movie deals, etc. off the death of our loved ones, while the families and communities are left clueless and broken. End quote. The mother of Breonna Taylor, meanwhile, criticized local Louisville Black Lives Matter activists earlier this year for using her daughter's death for their benefit as well. I could walk in a room full of people who claim to be here for Brianna's family, who don't even know who I am, Tamika Palmer said in the the, uh, since-deleted Facebook post. I've watched y'all raise money on behalf of Brianna's family, who has never done a, well, expletive thing for us, nor have we needed it or asked so, um, talk about fraud. It's amazing how many people have lost focus. So apparently the criticism isn't just coming from the so-called right, but there's plenty of evidence to raise questions about what the movement is doing. In other news, during a press conference on Tuesday, Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he signed legislation that bans transgender athletes from competing in women's and girls' sports in the state. The Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which the Republican-dominated Florida state legislature passed in April, bars males from competing against females in high school and college athletic Uh, programs regardless of their professed gender identity. The bill gives students the power to file a lawsuit against a school that allows transgender women to play on female teams. We believe it's very important that the integrity of these these competitions rather are preserved, that these opportunities are protected. In Florida, girls are 
going to play girl sports and boys are going to play boy sports, uh, DeSantis said at the press conference. We're going to go based off biology, not ideology, when we're doing sports, he continued. A number of other states, including Idaho, Montana, and West Virginia, have enacted similar policies, citing the unfairness and competition experienced by the girls who play against biological males with a physical advantage. Certain prominent Republican governors, namely Christy Nome of South Dakota, Doug Burgum of North Dakota, have vetoed their state's respective transgender bills so as to avoid expensive litigation, discrimination in hosting tournaments, and the corporate bullying from athletic conferences and organizations such as the NC2A. Democratic Governor Laura Kelly of Kansas also shot down her state's version using similar justification related to potential costs, as well as mention of promoting inclusivity, despite the bill gaining enough support to advance through both chambers. Kansas Republicans subsequently failed to to override that veto. And apparently it doesn't matter the impact that these uh, rules have on girls and women uh, and their uh, capacity to earn scholarships and to advance in their particular uh, sports. Governor DeSantis' action comes amid a new drive among female athletes to demand fairness and equal opportunity in their respective sports. USA Today recently modified the published personal testimony of one female athlete who lost major titles to transgender competitors to exclude hurtful language. Didn't matter that she was hurt by having to compete against males. Well, the Florida bill maintains or rather mandates that only biological women and girls are eligible to compete in female designated sports. It would allow for arbitration and gender disputed uh, disputes rather by requiring a medical professional to affirm a student's sex. Any student who is deprived of any athletic opportunity as a result of a violation of this law will have the right to civil remedies, DeSantis added, about the bill's uh, annual, or rather, avenue for legal recourse for female athletes. In other news, the Vatican on Tuesday unveiled an updated version of the Catholic Church's penal code to reflect scandals over clerical sex abuse and financial corruption that have shaken the church in recent years, expanding the types of offenses as well as potential culprits and victims. Well, the new penal code broadens the categories of persons uh, who can be punished for sex abuse to include lay people and nuns, but doesn't provide for the automatic defrocking of abusive priests, as some campaigners had demanded. Though mostly a collection of legislation established by popes over the past three decades, it places greater emphasis than the previous code, publishes, uh, published in 1983, on the obligation to enforce penalties, stating that bishops are required to take punitive action when warnings or other measures are inadequate to do justice or reform the guilty. In a decree instituting the revision, Pope Francis wrote that um, uh, charity and discipline are are intimately related and that the proper remedy for immoral behavior is not only exhortations but suggestions. Uh, The revised code reclassifies the sexual abuse of minors by clergy among crimes against the life, dignity, and freedom of man rather than violations of special obligations of clergy as stated in the 1983 code. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll hear from Jack Phillips, the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier, I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I know you will uh, enjoy it as well. Joining me is Jack Phillips. He is the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court, as well as Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom and has been a part of this case that is so familiar to so many of us over this period of time. One of the questions that I think many of us have uh, thought and many have asked is why not just bake the cake? Well, that's a question that lots of people across the country started asking back in 2012 when Jack Phillips uh, told two men who walked into his masterpiece cake shop that he couldn't create a custom cake for their same-sex wedding. Now, most of us know that story. The question only grew more urgent as um, he had to defend himself first uh, before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and then numerous courts losing every step of the way until the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in his favor in June of 2018. Well, he has written a book about this odyssey, and I'm so delighted that we have an opportunity to learn more. When Jack Phillips opened his masterpiece cake shop in 1993. He gave it the name that reflected his intentional blending of culinary skill and artistic talent, all for the glory of God. Well, he and his wife, Debbie, have three grown children and make their home in Colorado. Uh, Jack joins us today to talk about the cost of my faith, how a decision in my cake shop took me to the Supreme Court, along with Jonathan Scruggs, who is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom in this cake. Jack and Jonathan, thank you both for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having us. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with this case, so let's begin before the beginning. Maybe, Jack, you can fill us in a little bit about Masterpiece Cake Shop, what your dream and vision was for the the, uh, uh, the cake shop that brought you to the conflict that made your name virtually a household name for many. So go back to 1993 when we opened the shop or farther back. I graduated high school in 1974. I needed a job, and a man that lived across the street from me owned a large wholesale bakery, like 100 employees, and imagined conveyor belts with donuts and Danish and just a lot of activity and huge amount of products. And I fell in love with baking. I thought this was just a great job. And then a year or two down the road, he bought out another bakery and brought in cake decorating. And I had never seen that, but I knew that would be my future because I have an art art background. I love to do art, paint, draw, sculpt, all those things. And when I saw that, I thought, that cake is you know, my new canvas. And so I'm going to open a bakery someday. And immediately I knew the name of it. It would be Masterpiece Cake Shop because Masterpiece says art and Cake Shop says cakes. And you wouldn't come into the shop looking for a loaf of bread or a, or a pie, <laughs> but you would hopefully come in and uh, know that it was a place where you could get an artistic cake to celebrate your uh, special occasions. You are now largely known as a Christian baker because of events that occurred when two men walked into your cake shop asking for a cake to be designed for a ceremony that you could not embrace. Tell us about that day that for you and your family changed everything. Well, that day was it was a beautiful July afternoon here in Denver. And um, like every other day, I had two men that came in. Well, not like every other day, but every day we have people that come in and mm-hmm. we're glad to serve everybody who comes in. This day, two men were sitting at our wedding desk, and it's an area where we have uh, tiered cakes and wedding cakes set up, where we do consultations, and not just for weddings, but for other events as well. We'll, we'll sit down and we'll draw and we'll sculpt, uh, we'll sketch and make, you know, make clear the ideas that we're going to create on a cake. So anyway, I walked around the desk and sat down opposite these two men, and, and I introduced myself. They gave me their names, and then one of them said, you know, we're here to look at wedding cakes, 
And the other one jumped in, like, yeah, and it's for our wedding. And I immediately knew what my response was going to be because this was not a cake that we could create. Back in uh, before 1993 when he opened it, my wife and I had laid some ground rules. There are cakes that we will create, cakes that we won't, including we don't create cakes that celebrate Halloween or that are un-American or racist or that denigrate or degrade or insult other people. And we also talked about that we wouldn't create cakes that celebrate same-sex weddings, even though back in 1993, it was illegal. It wasn't legal in the United States. It was illegal in the state of Colorado. So we knew, we didn't think that would ever come up, but here it was facing me. And so I knew what my answer would be. I'm sorry, guys, I don't create cakes for same-sex weddings. And they looked at me, you know, stunned kind of blankly and like, what did you just say? I said, well, I'll sell you birthday cakes, shower cakes, sell you cookies and brownies. I just don't do cakes for same-sex weddings. And one of them jumped up, flipped me off, started swearing, stormed out the door. The other one got up, stormed out the other door, and, and just left me absolutely stunned. It's like 29 words in 20 seconds, and it just changed my whole life. Yeah, you probably could not have anticipated at that point what would follow. But let me ask you the question that so many have asked, not understanding your conviction. Why not just bake the cake? I mean, it's it's sugar, it's flour. Why not bake the cake? What's the difference? Well, it's more than just sugar and flour and eggs. It's, it's like I said, it's my canvas. It's what I create art on. And we sit down with the, with the customer and we decide, you know, what's a special event? It might be grandma's birthday and you want to show how much you love her because um, this is the way you want to do it. But we'll, we'll figure out what is grandma like, you know, what would make this cake really special and show that, that special message for her. And in this case, uh, the wedding cake in itself, a wedding cake by itself has an inherent message. If you mm-hmm. were at a hotel room and you walked in, opened the door to a conference room and looked in the corner and there's a cake sitting on the table, you would know that that was a wedding was to be celebrated there. You wouldn't think it's a business meeting. You would know instinctively just by seeing that, that wedding cake, that there's a wedding taking place. So the wedding cake itself has an inherent message. And this was a message for a, to celebrate a view of marriage that goes against my biblical view, my biblical belief of marriage and what the Bible teaches. And, uh, so it was a message that I couldn't create. And so I tried in those few sentences to tell these men, I'll serve you anything else. You know, you're welcome. I'll make other custom cakes, but I can't create cakes that express messages that go against my faith. Now, Jonathan, you're an attorney. Talk a little bit about the legal ramifications of making the announcement that I have declined to create a certain kind of cake that con- that contradicts my biblical worldview. Talk a little bit about the, the legal challenge that followed. Uh, as Jack noted, when he declined to create that cake, he was essentially sued by uh, the government. Uh, it was put through an administrative process uh, through the state and accused of violating Colorado's public accommodation law, which bans discrimination. And that's essentially what the state accused him of doing. Uh, and our defense was simple, uh, that Jack doesn't uh, – Jack serves everyone. Uh, he, he just doesn't convey all messages that are requested of them. This is no different than an LGBT artist who is declines to create artwork condemning same-sex marriage, right? No one, the government shouldn't force that. It shouldn't force Jackie either. So that case proceeded up through the system and eventually uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the U.S. Supreme Court said that 
Colorado officials treated Jack unfairly, that they showed hostility toward his religious beliefs, both in what they said and also in how they treated him unfairly compared to other uh, bakers and other artists. Um, and, and we won. So Jack can fill in a little bit about those details. But the overall ruling of the case is, you know, the government shouldn't force people to speak messages they disagree with that violates their core convictions. And that's a freedom that should apply to both sides and on all different views. Well, it seems like the Supreme Court decision should put an end to the argument uh, and that this should be a, a done deal that you don't you cannot be forced by the government. Uh, to produce something that conflicts with your core values. Is that the end, or is this an ongoing debate across the country? Uh, Unfortunately, it's an ongoing debate. Uh, You would think that a U.S. Supreme Court decision would settle it, but you have seen governments, even in Jack's situation, but also across the country, try to apply these similar laws to force other artists to speak messages they disagree with. Uh, but you also see courts squarely ruling in the favor of these artists, uh, such as there's a court in Arizona, a court in Minnesota that ruled in favor of these decisions. And, of course, Jack is being sued again uh, most recently. He just recently went through a trial uh, because he was uh, – basically someone requested him to uh, create a cake celebrating a gender transition, which Jack declined. So we're seeing these uh, incidents pop up all all across the country. We're continuing to defend them. We're continuing to defend Jack uh, because the First Amendment and free speech are on his side. We're talking with Jack Phillips with Masterpiece Cake Shop. And, of course, he's the author of the, uh, the new book, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. Also joining us, Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, without which uh, we, we'd be in a bad way. They do some tremendous work defending religious freedom and other issues of great concern. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan Scruggs, who is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, and Jack Phillips. He is the author most recently of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. Now, what was it like to be confronted uh, in your own cake shop and holding to a biblical worldview and that becoming such a controversy that ultimately it led you through many courts and uh, finally the Supreme Court with this still being unresolved? What was that like for you, Jack Phillips, a man of faith, a man of conviction? And yeah, it is my faith that compels all my actions, you know, the way I treat my employees, the way I treat my customers, the way I treat my marriage or handle my money. And for that faith to be attacked by the government like this and drugged through the courts for these many years was just really unthinkable. Um, but we've had to uh, go through these court systems, and we've been through, uh, we're in our third lawsuit that uh, Jonathan was just talking about, where an attorney here in Colorado uh, called us up and requested a custom cake, uh, blue on the outside and pink on the inside, and those colors were to celebrate um, a gender transition. And when we told this uh, person that that's not a cake that we could create. It's the message of the cake. But that person was welcome in our store, and we did create other um, events, uh, cakes for other events. That mm-hmm. person sued us through the same Civil Rights Commission. That case was eventually dismissed, and then this attorney, rather than uh, the state dismissed it, and this attorney, rather than appeal that dismissal, uh, decided to sue us personally in the civil court. So we're in that court now. And part of the thinking of this person was to correct the errors in my thinking. And that was one of the basis of the uh, lawsuit. 
Now, you lost a significant part of your business because uh, of uh, the decision you made to stand firmly in your faith and oppose making uh, a cake that reflected something that you could not embrace. Talk a little bit about how you have navigated in your community and the impact that all of this has had on your business. Yeah, it was a significant ruling against us back in the first stage when the administrative law court ruled against us that I had uh, violated this law. And they said that I had to um, change my policies, I had to retrain my staff, and I had to report to the uh, commission quarterly for two years on the um, the effectiveness of my retraining. Um, part of the uh, wedding business was that... Uh, um, or the part of the business that lost was the wedding business because the commission said that if I'm going to create wedding cakes, I have to create them for everybody. Also included with that was that I wouldn't be able to be included in the, in the design. So if a, a couple came in, same-sex or heterosexual, and they wanted, say, an adult theme on their cake or a pornographic theme, I wouldn't have a choice of creating that. I would have to do it. And... Uh, that's something that we couldn't do. So we either had to agree to create every cake that came to us or uh, drop our lucrative wedding business, which was a large percentage of our business at that time. So we dismissed our wedding business, and uh, um, God's been faithful to cover all of our stuff beyond that. At the same time, I also had 10 employees, and after we were after we lost our wedding business, we were down to four employees, including myself. So there were some... Um, deep ramifications that came with that decision. Making the decision to decline making a cake uh, for a same-sex wedding ceremony has been very costly. In fact, you could not have anticipated how costly it would have uh, ultimately be. Let me ask you if you've ever um, second-guessed that decision and what the cost has been for you, for your business, and for your family. You know, honestly, we have never second-guessed it. When Before we started the cake shop we knew what those lines would be that we couldn't cross and this was one of them we couldn't cross it then we couldn't cross it now and i've never once thought well maybe i should have just made the cake the decision that we made was right but it has been a costly decision um we had 10 employees before this all happened we were down to four including myself um we lost our uh very lucrative wedding business which was a large percentage of our income and uh it was yeah some hard hard ramifications from that, but the uh, the decision was easy and the decision was right. I I know a lot of um, believers in particular who just want to stay out of the the spotlight. If we just don't say anything, if we just keep our heads down, we can avoid the kind of challenge that you have obviously um, had to live with. Uh, where did the courage come from to make that initial pronouncement? You know, I can't make this cake for you. I'm willing to serve you in any other way. And then to stay the course, which has been a very long and arduous process that ultimately led you to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, part of that um, was preparation that uh, of our from our decision early on that we wouldn't create cakes to celebrate Halloween. Some of the other cakes that we decided not to create, uh, people would ask us for adult themed cakes. We already knew we weren't going to make those, so you know we have to turn those away and graciously offer you know other products or other designs. And the Halloween thing that comes up every year, multiple times, September, October, you get uh, requests for cakes that we had decided not to do. So God was gracious in that and giving us the practice in saying, this is not a cake that we can create. 
because of our religious beliefs, our deeply held religious convictions. And so we were prepared when the big one came. And then standing up for it, you know, the options were you either stand up for it or you fold or you close the shop or the state finds you or whatever and, and you lose the shop. And all of those were costs we were willing to take. But we couldn't go back and change the decision. We wouldn't. How have you seen God work during this uh, very challenging season? Um, I write about some of them in The Cost of My Faith. Mm-hmm. But I, the, one of the, the main things that he's done with us, helping us grow in our, our faith, um, was providing for all of our needs without the wedding business and without all those things, but also providing Alliance Defending Freedom to come in and stand beside us and help us through all this. Um, Alliance Defending Freedom defends all their clients pro bono, which means for free, but it's not free. They they use donations to help fight these battles. And these are not just, this is not just my battle. I realized when we were going to the uh, Supreme Court trying to make that decision, you know, should we petition the court or not? And the odds of getting selected by the court are less than 1%. They just don't take, they turn away mm-hmm. over 7,000 of the 8,000 cases. Or, you know, seven or 8,000 cases are presented every year, and they take about 70. So the odds of getting there are or slim, and I thought, well, we're already not there. Why don't we petition? The worst that could happen is that we're officially not there. And they said, no, the worst that could happen is they grant your case, and then you lose. And at that point, I realized that this was more than just Jack and his cakes. This is right for every American to be free to live and work according to their conscience without fear of punishment from the government and not have to express messages that they don't agree with. And so you're watching God prepare us and then bringing ADF to help and the advice and help that they've given us all the way through, just small examples of, of the ways that he helped us grow and protected us through this whole thing. You know, most of us are aware of the challenge uh, the uh, that came when you made that decision and that announcement and everything that followed. But how has God used this situation to uh, generate conversation or to give you opportunities to share your faith? Has there been that side of this whole conflict as well? Oh, there has been, right from the first, like the very first Saturday, the two men came in on Thursday, and then on that following Saturday, I was getting all these crazy, hateful, weird phone calls, but then I got a call in the middle of the day from a man who identified himself as an atheist from somewhere up northwest uh, United States, and and we had a conversation, it was like 45 minutes long, and I I gave him the gospel, you know, three or four different ways. Or another day, um, a radio station, a local station, did a broadcast from our show, a live broadcast from our shop. And one of the first men that came in at 5 o'clock that morning identified himself, said, my name is Mike Jones, and I'm a gay man, and I came to see what's going on here. Hi, Mike, how are you? And we struck up a conversation, and he came back later that day, and we've become friends ever since. And what makes that unique is that Mike Jones was a former gay activist, and he's on our side now, and he even testified for us in the last... Uh, court case back in March. And it's just amazing the platform that God has given us. We're going to need to take a break, so uh, we'll uh, do that right now. But we'll continue our conversation with Jack Phillips, author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. The book is published by Regnery. We're also talking with Jonathan Scruggs. He's an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, has done uh, extraordinary work in this case and many others to protect uh, religious freedom. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Phillips. He's the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. We're also talking with Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. Jonathan, we are familiar with Jack Phillips' case, and many of us have followed Masterpiece Cake Shop over the years. How common is this uh, this challenge becoming, and is are we close to a, a time in which the question of whether or not uh, an artist, for example, is free to decline to produce art that does not uh, comport with their um, deeply and sincerely held beliefs. Well, unfortunately, it is a comic occurrence that you see these type of government entities, these commissions, these legis- uh, administrative bodies going after artists, particularly people of faith, uh, because they can't promote messages they disagree with. Uh, I noted earlier uh, we won a case in Arizona on behalf of an art studio, a painter and a calligrapher. Uh, also a case on behalf of two filmmakers in Minnesota, but the cases are ongoing. Uh, there's photographer cases in Kentucky and Virginia, and just recently a new case was filed in the state of New York. Uh, but so far we've won a, a vast majority of these cases under the simple principle that uh, free speech shouldn't be just for those who agree with the government. Uh, it should apply to both sides. It should go both ways. And that that's a winning message, both in the courtroom, but also more broadly. I think people understand that we can't have these freedoms be selective, that in order for our democracy to work, we've got to protect people regardless of their views, regardless if they're popular today or, or popular tomorrow. Uh, and those are important principles that we're defending uh, throughout all these cases, and particularly in Jack's case. Now, Jack mentioned that you uh, worked with him pro bono, but the services you provide are not cost-free. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I've financially contributed to Alliance Defending Freedom because I believe very strongly in what you all do. For people who want to support your work, certainly with Jack Phillips and others, what's the best way for them to learn more as well as to help support your ongoing efforts? Uh, the best way is to visit our website, www.adflegal.org, and you can learn about all our cases and what things we're doing. And also, if you'd like to contribute your time or prayers or, or monetary funds, we appreciate that as well. Let me ask you, Jack, what do you say to people who are afraid, who are afraid of being confronted, being challenged, having to stand up uh, for the sake of the gospel and say, this is where I draw the line, I will go no further. Because it is a frightening thing to consider the weight of um, civil government or or any uh, opposition that might come when we as followers of Jesus decide, I'm going to be a man or woman of conviction. Well, like I said, uh, my wife and I drew our lines in the sand and, and we knew which one's you know, we could cross or which one yes. could move, but, you know, some are firmly drawn and, and they, we can't move them, we can't cross them. Um, even, like, looking at the prospect of the uh, ruling in the case that we're at, if it goes against us, um, it, well, actually, if I win, the lawyer who's suing me told me face-to-face in a mediation meeting and under oath in court that if I were to win this case, um, I would get a phone call the very next day and we'd, go, we'd start all over again. Even knowing that's coming, I can't cross that line because you have to know which lines you're going to cross, which lines you're not, and they have to be worth it. And uh, Jesus Christ is worth that standing on the side, on the right side of the line for. 
what has life been like for you since the Supreme Court and certainly with these pen, the pending case that you've been referencing? Uh, and how has that impacted your faith? Uh, it's It's been good for, for my faith, my family, my wife, my daughters. Um, our whole family has grown closer together and we just, you know, we, we build each other up. We hold each other accountable for things. And uh, God has just helped us out through this whole thing. So, um it's been a profitable experience that way that God has really taken care of us and blessed us and drawn us closer to him. Have you had opportunities to share your testimony um, in settings that would not have been available to you had this not occurred? Uh, yeah, many times. And now with the cost of my faith, my testimony is, is in there as clearly as I could write it in chapter seven. And I hope mm-hmm. that's the, uh, I've, had people tell me they read chapter seven first, and I want to share my my testimony as many ways as I can, and this is one of them. And face to face with people who come into the shop and ask me the same questions: Why didn't you just make the cake? And then we can open up this conversation. Have you had any pushback from uh, men and women of faith who uh, think you know th- this is uh, small potatoes? You should have baked the cake. Um, or do you find broad support within the believing community? Broad support within the community, but still some detractors who say, you know, Jesus would have baked a cake. And um, that came up on a TV show that I did an interview on, and, and I don't believe he would have. I'm sure he wouldn't have, because that would make him contradict his own word. And so I try and point those kind of issues out to uh, people who identify as Christians, that uh, that's not a Christian principle, that Jesus wouldn't do that, and he doesn't He doesn't want us to um, go along with this um, ideology either, that we should you know, well, we, you need him to be follow him. Men and women of conscience, and violating one's conscience is not a uh, thing that I would uh, certainly advise, nor does Scripture. Uh, Jonathan Scruggs, let me ask you what to anticipate moving forward. Obviously, Jack is facing another Uh, a court challenge. Um, What do you anticipate happening there? And uh, how does that uh, reflect what's going on elsewhere with regard to artists being uh, pressured into violating their own conscience? Sure. Well, uh, as we've talked about, Jack uh, recently got done with a trial uh, in uh, the lower court in Colorado, and we're waiting for a ruling uh, from that case. It could happen any day in the upcoming weeks. And then potentially that case could be appealed up to the next level, whether it be the Colorado Court of Appeals, Colorado Supreme Court, or the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so these issues are going to be resolved. And then you have a nationwide perspective where you've got the Equality Act uh, that's being considered in Congress, which essentially would make the same law that Jack is being prosecuted under, would make it a nationwide law to allow any artist to be prosecuted uh, for holding beliefs that Jack holds. Um, so eventually, one of these cases, uh, whether it be Jack's case or these cases filtered out across the country in Virginia and New York, is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide the big issue here is that really do Americans have freedom to bring their faith into their workplace? Uh, or can the government compel them to address ideas and ideologies and to favor ideologies they disagree with? Uh, so we look forward to that day, and we're confident that the arguments that we're making in these court cases will be accepted by them and eventually accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
know, these are such huge issues. If you're tempted to dismiss this because we're talking about a cake being baked, uh, don't underestimate the significance of uh, what we're talking about here because it does have very broad implications. And as you've pointed out, to Jonathan, uh, those have the potential to reach into virtually every area of life when you're talking about the expression of faith in the public square. Again, the book that we've been talking about, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. And I, I so appreciate your letting us sit in on this whole process. I think for many of us, we couldn't even imagine being in the situation that you found yourself in by simply stating, you know, this is one thing I can't do. I can do 15 other things, but this one thing I can't do. And not surprisingly, it uh, it ultimately took you all the way to the Supreme Court. And these issues are still very active all across the country. Uh, Jack, let me ask you in closing, what's your message to our listeners today who may find themselves in a similar situation with the details and the particulars being quite different, but being called upon to stand firmly on their conviction and faith um, that may lead them into places they, uh, uh, they, they at this point couldn't imagine? What's, what's your word to, to the rest of us? Well, one of my uh, favorite verses is Second Chronicles 16.9. It says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen the man whose heart is fully committed to him. And he's shown himself faithful to that. He's shown us his strength. He's shown his strength through us and because our heart is fully committed to him. And I would just encourage people to uh, you know, get to know him, read their Bibles, spend time in, in the Word and in prayer and fellowship with other believers to get to know who, he, who this God is and who we serve and to do our best to serve him with our whole hearts. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, I appreciate your sharing your story and your uh, willingness to stand up for many of us uh, in the court and uh, continue to do so. Again, the book is The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. I also want to thank Jonathan Scruggs, who, along with ADF, have uh, stood and, and supported Jack Phillips, representing him in court and so many others across the country. You do extraordinary work, and I'm grateful that you're willing to do that. Thank you to both of you for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with David Horowitz, his latest book, The Enemy Within, How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. That's coming up tomorrow right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. That's according to research from notable evangelical pollster George Barna. They released the uh, figures as part of a new endeavor with the Christian conservative advocacy organization, Family Research Council. Well, in a statement on Wednesday, FRC announced that Barna, who founded the influential evangelical polling organization, Barna Group, joined the organization as a senior fellow of their newly launched Center for Biblical Worldview. Uh, FRC President Tony Perkins said that the center is designed to give Christians a firm foundation so that they can engage the culture by being rooted in God's word. Every Christian can and should obtain a biblical worldview, which is only achieved when a person believes that the Bible is true, authoritative, and then taught how it's applicable to every area of life, which enables them to live out their beliefs. Uh, As part of the center's launch, the Family Research Council released research conducted by the Barna 
Metaformation Research Group. Some of the new um, report includes questions and data compiled for the American Worldview Inventory produced by the Barna-led Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Well, the data found that, among other things, that while 51% of American adults said that they have a biblical worldview, only 6% of American adults actually hold this worldview. Barna drew the conclusion of inconsistency among the 51% reporting a biblical worldview by noting that many of the questions to determine worldview found this group technically outside of what the pollster defined as a biblical worldview, and more importantly, what the scriptures uh, would uh, would say. For example, of the 51%, 49% said that reincarnation was a possibility after they die. Meanwhile, only 33% said they believe that the human being, that human beings rather, are born with a sinful nature and can only be saved from the consequences of sin by Jesus Christ. Only 33% said they believed that. Now that's the heart and core of Christianity, of biblical Christianity. So what do you believe if you don't accept what the scriptures teach, what's the purpose of Christ coming? Well, data for the research came from a May survey featuring a nationally representative sample of only a thousand adults with a sampling error of about plus or minus 3.2 percentage points. Um, Christians have a, a duty to stand against the prevailing cultural tides and proclaim, uh, proclaim rather, God's truth to a dark and wandering world, Tony Perkins uh, said. But before you stand, you need solid ground. Well, the data comes as similar results have been founded by other surveys in recent years. You might recall last summer, the Cultural Research Center revealed um, data compiled in January of 2020 that showed that 2% of millennials hold a biblical worldview, even though 61% identify as Christian. Uh, In 2017, a survey from the American Culture and Family Institute found that about um, 10% of Americans hold a distinctly biblical worldview, even though 46% claimed to lead a Christian life. So 10% actually embrace what the scriptures teach, 46% uh, profess to be followers of Jesus, but don't embrace what the scriptures teach. Uh, In addition to Barna serving as the senior fellow, the Family Research Center's new Center for Biblical Worldview is going to be headed by David Clausen, He's the author of Biblical Worldview series that the Family Research Council uh, has published. Uh, he's written pieces for publications including the National Review, the Gospel Coalition. Owen Strahan, the uh, provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Arkansas, has also joined the center as its senior fellow. Uh, he says that I am excited to work more closely with the Family Research Council to apply the research findings in ways that help to transform individuals' lives and American culture. Barna said in a statement that given the Family Research Council's track record of making a difference in our society based upon its unwavering commitment to biblical principles, I look forward to an effective and fruitful partnership using research to guide our efforts. Well, the founder and namesake of the Barna Group, uh, also founded the Cultural Research Center back in March of 2020. So this is an effort to try to reconcile the difference between one's profession of faith, which I, I don't believe they're questioning, but the need to align one's life with what the scriptures teach. Now one, one can't question whether or not someone is saved. Um, there are certain elements that only the Holy Spirit can uh, play a part in, but we do know the scripture says you will know them by their fruit. And that is one indication of how closely we are following with God's purpose and plan for our lives as individuals and for the body of Christ in general. 
So this effort is to try to reconcile the difference between the profession of faith that may be uninformed by Scripture. Now, part of that uh, problem is that far few of us, far too few of us, are familiar enough with the Scriptures that we would know the difference. Then there's the case of those in our society who simply reject elements of what the Scriptures teach because uh, they're inconsistent with what's popular in culture. It can be very costly to stand on God's Word as opposed to uh, to stand on what the uh, the culture is saying is the thing for the moment. And trust me, the culture is not very reliable in expressing absolute truth that one can hang one's hat on, stand firm on, because the social mores of the culture are shifting with some regularity. In fact, from week to week, you can't be certain about what's uh, what's accepted and what's in. And even if you embrace the primary tenets of the culture, it may be that you fall within a category that's still not accepted or embraced. So it's very tenuous when you try to keep up with the culture, because what's popularized, what group you belong to, what views you hold, uh, changes very rapidly, and there can be uh, very serious consequences for not staying up to date. You may not be woke enough, and the definition of woke can change dramatically enough um, that you can never reach that standard. It may be that you belong to a group that can never be reconciled, as is the case with critical race theory. If you're black, or at least black enough, you're in. If you're Caucasian, you're out, and there's really no way of reconciling there's no way of uh, redeeming oneself. Uh, so trying to stand firm on the, uh, the sand of the culture can be more challenging than you might imagine. So this effort of the Family Research Council and the uh, Center for Biblical Worldview uh, is an exciting new ministry to help, uh, again, reconcile the professed believer in Jesus Christ so that they can better reflect uh, what God's word teaches us about what it means to be a follower of Christ. You know, God has promised in his word that he is going to conform us to the image of his son. This is a project that he has undertaken and says in his word that he will not abandon that project. He will not abandon the work that he began in you and I until it is completed. Now, we're not going to be perfect uh, representing the character of Christ in this life, but there is a time coming in eternity where we will see the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. But in the meantime, he has committed himself to working in and through us day by day through the power of his Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of his son. And we would do well to cooperate and to familiarize ourselves with his word. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Once again, tomorrow we'll talk with David Horowitz, his latest book, The Enemy Within, How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. The book is published by Regnery. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.